going on, you guys? My name is Brian Silverman. This is the Brian at the Disco podcast, intended for August 2nd, 2018. It's recorded the day before on August 1st. How's it going? I got a lot of different subjects that I want to tackle today, and the first of all is my favorite press secretary, Sean the Spicy Boy Spicer. Now, I've talked a lot about Sean Spicer on this podcast before, and just when you think Sean Spicer has gone from the political mainstream view... Oh, a clip comes out of someone actually treating him correctly. You might remember at the Emmys last year, they, uh, Stephen Colbert and James Corbin brought out Sean Spicer, joked around with him, and he joked about his time in the White House. My personal opinion, you know, you can be, you can be funny and you can uh, joke around with people that you don't agree with. But when you spend as much time as Colbert did railing against this guy and really speaking out against him correctly. I agreed with Colbert on all the things he said about Spicer. And then you bring him in and you you play all nice with him. I feel like it's almost signaling to the audience, this is all just a joke. Oh, it's show business. I know how this is. It's an entertainment business. So no hard feelings. What do you say? We can all be friends here. Doing that though, I mean, that's his intent going in, but doing that undermines all of the criticism Colbert gave to Sean Spicer before that. So I wanted to say that before I got into the clip, that kind of sets up the part that I'm going to be talking about. And uh, I believe the woman who is interviewing Sean Spicer, her name is Emily Maitlis here. So I'm going to real quick react to this clip. And my favorite part of this, by the way, and I don't want to spoil it, is after she asks a question, it takes Sean Spicer a second to answer. Now, this is a live feed where he is sitting in another studio, so he is actually hearing her live. So there's no artificial delay. So, for for example, the first question, he starts answering immediately, right? Because that's when he realizes that she's done with her question and he can re- respond. But as the interview goes on, those silences between her asking the question and him answer, they are my favorite part of that. Let me tell you, oh, it is such sweet beauty to listen to Sean Spice. You can almost hear the gears in his head turning, trying to come up with a response. And as is everybody in the uh, entertainment these days, whenever someone wants to go guest on a late night show or go on a BBC program like Sean Spicer is here, they're always hawking some product. They're either hawking some new TV show that's coming out, some new movie that they're in, or in Sean Spicy Spicer's case, he's trying to hawk his stupid book that no one should read because he's a bootlicking piece of garbage. So with that in mind, let's get into the first clip. You joked about it when you presented the Emmy Awards, but it wasn't a joke. It was the start of the most corrosive culture. You played with the truth. You led us down a dangerous path. You have corrupted discourse for the entire world by going along with these lies. I love, by the way, that she is going after him with both barrels. She's not trying to play this, oh, we can be friends, but let me plug your book. She does that later on, and she does it in such a... A masterful way. Uh, I love this. I've watched this clip a hundred times. But uh, let's go back and just hear her first question again so that we can actually get Sean Spicer's response. Because she asks him, you corrupted discourse. You made that people can just lie and there's no real check for that or balance. And the way you insulate yourself from criticism is that you say, oh, those people are liars. What is your response to that? And he, of course, does what every bootlicker sycophant of Trump's does. He just starts attacking the media. So... Let me, sorry, let me go back and we'll hear the clip from the top. You joked about it when you presented the Emmy Awards, 
But it wasn't a joke. It was the start of the most corrosive culture. You played with the truth. You led us down a dangerous path. You have corrupted discourse for the entire world by She's going right. along with these lies. With all due... I I'm sorry, Emily, that, that you, you act as though everything began and ended with that. You're taking no accountability for the many false narratives and false stories that the media ha uh, per perpetrated. He shouts Look, fake I, I think news that when he doesn't here, like I wrote, something. I wrote, I, but, but I wrote a book that, that I think is a fairly... That is such a great moment because it's so rare that you have someone who, who has someone like the former press secretary in there. And when he's just going along these kind of bullshit pre-rehearsed lines like, oh, the media, you have no accountability. Oh, the media, blah, 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 blah. Then she cuts him off and essentially says the truth of what you're doing is he yells fake news when he doesn't like what he's here. Uh, I'm going to go back and I'm sorry. I don't mean to retread so much of this, but let me just go back. I want to hear that part one more time where she cuts him off and you can hear him just getting so tripped up by it because he was probably expecting a soft, you know, a real soft shoe interview here. Let's go back. Or is it the media ha uh, per perpetrated? He shouts Look, fake I, I think news that when he doesn't here, like I wrote, something. I wrote, I wrote, <laughs> I but but I wrote a book that, that I think is a fairly Hawk strong representation of what happened in the campaign, the transition, and the White House. I take responsibility where I think I've fallen short or I could Such have done better. Such a precious better. secretary you to that kind of claim and wants to talk about his book, like it nothing else. And ended with Donald Trump is just absolutely ridiculous. I, I just I guess my question is: You are his press secretary, and I know from what I've read that you care about the freedoms and the institutions and the democracy on which your country was built. And this is the office of president spouting lies or half-truths or knocking down real truths. And you were his agent for those months. My job as I lay out in the book was to be the president's spokesperson. The part right there where he pauses and he tries to come up with a way to answer her without saying, look, I fucked up. I worked for a piece of garbage. Which is essentially what she's saying. You know, I don't mean to summarize what her points were. But rather than answering her question, he just gets right back to plugging his piece of shit book. As I said, I don't know if I was talking over the clip, but he's such a press secretary. He just shoehorns everything back into, talk about the book, Sean. Talk about the book. We got to get the book off the shelves. Let me just go back a little bit more so we can retread a little bit more of this clip here. And real truths. And you were his agent for those months. My job, as that I lay out in the book, was to be the so president's good. spokesperson and communicate so his good. thoughts and his ideas when he wasn't able to do it or wasn't present. That's my job. My job wasn't to... I was only following orders! My, the best advice and counsel that I could in private, I shared with him what I thought strategy would be, but at the end of the Which day, I don't he believe. the president of the United States, and it was his thoughts and his ideas okay. uh, and his feelings that it was my job to communicate them. Whether let, you like them or not, those were his thoughts and his feelings. Let me talk about his feelings a little bit because uh, you described very well the day that the Access Hollywood story broke and the Republican candidate for president was talking in that tape of grabbing women by the pussy. Did that tell you anything about your man that you didn't previously know? Well, I think we've all said things in private, which God, that that's that are inappropriate or Have you said things like and, that? And uh, uh, I, I don't know that I would want every single thing that I've ever said Again, in private to be Again, not answering public. the question. No, I probably said some things that I regret. Absolutely. I don't know that I've used those exact terms. Uh, <sighs> that clip, I, I could watch it a thousand more times. And I'm sorry if I went back over the same material over and over and over there. But right there at the end where she asks him about the grabbing by the pussy thing, which is at the bottom of the terrible things 
that Trump has said. We, somehow that got buried. But women should never have voted for this piece of garbage. The fact that middle America somehow believes that he, that Donald Trump represents them, when the other day in Tampa, Florida, I think it was last night, he said that you need an ID to buy groceries. How disconnected do you have to be? That you don't even know how to buy groceries. I'm just going to go back one more time to when she asked him about the grabbing them by the pussy tape, and he just, uh, you can hear him freeze and not know how to answer, which is rare for a press secretary. One more time, and then I promise we're done with this clip. I shared with him what I thought strategy would be, but at the end of the day, he is the president of the United States, and it was his thoughts and his ideas okay. uh, and his feelings that it was my job to communicate them. Whether you like them or not, those were his thoughts and his feelings. Let me talk about his feelings a little bit because uh, you described very well the day that the Access Hollywood story broke and the Republican candidate for president was talking in that tape of grabbing women by the pussy. Did that tell you anything about your man that you didn't previously know? Well, I think we've all said things in private, which that was, that are inappropriate Have or regrettable. Have you said things like and, that? And, uh, uh, I, I don't know that I would want every single thing that I've ever said in private to be made public now. Not I've the question. I've said some things that I regret, absolutely. I don't know that I've used those exact terms. Uh uh, dude, what an interview. What an interview. And it, it took someone... Let me, let me give her one more plug. Uh, her name is Emily Maitlis. God, thank you, Emily Maitlis, for finally giving Sean Spicy Spicer the interview he had so rightfully deserved. And it took someone in another country looking in because they've been dealing with their own kind of form of populism since Brexit. So they've been, you know, their, their media has been attacked a lot. So they kind of understand the game almost better than ours. Ours is still in kind of this metamorphosis of growing into the fact that, oh, people are attacking us that we don't have more nuanced views on Trump, even though we do. Maybe if we talk more positively about him, he'll give us the time of day. No. No, you can't try to acquiesce to these people. They are nut jobs. We need to vote them out of office. I am a registered Democrat now. I get to vote in the primaries coming up. Proud of it. And I intend to get rid of every Republican that I can sitting on uh, as a representative for me. And I'm doing what I would advise other people to do is just also to research the candidates that you are voting for. Don't just go in there blind on vote on voting day. Okay. Research your candidates, know who you're voting for, know that their principles align further with yours. I know it sounds like a lot of work over nothing, but it's important. Another thing that I wanted to talk about, just to shift gears here a little bit, is, as always, the finest example of journalism that is absolutely, according to Trump, not fake news. We have an article from the great Breitbart, which never propped up the alt-right and never spoke positively about white supremacists. Why would they ever, why would they ever report on crazy conspiracy theories like Seth Rich or Pizzagate. They would never do that at Breitbart.com, that fine bastion of journalism that used to be run by Steve Bannon himself. So, got a great article here that really tickled my fancy earlier this week. They got the exclusive. Breitbart's got the exclusive. However, they got the, 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 this scoop. Oh, it, follow the money. That's what Deep Throat probably had to tell them to get this. So, Jackie Mason says, and I... As someone who is a comedian and does open mics and fancies myself a funny person who takes in stand-up comedy, I don't know who Jackie Mason is. So Jackie Mason says that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is to the left of Putin. 
In case you don't know who Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is, they give a brief summary here. Ocasio-Cortez last month sent political shockwaves across the nation when she won the Democratic Party primary for New York's 14th Congressional District against veteran Congressman Joe Crowley. She was one of the uh, first people to be an op- openly socialist uh, to win a primary uh, in the United States. Um, so Jackie Mason jested, calling her to the left doesn't even tell her story. She makes Putin look like he is on the right, as referencing Vladimir Putin. She's to the left of Putin. Now, to be clear to Jackie Mason, political scholar that he is, Putin is on the right. Putin is a dictator who has been in power in one way or another for decades in Russia since the fall of the USSR. Dictatorships, stay with me here, stay with me here, are on the far right. Saying that she's to the left of Putin is like saying, you know what, she's to the left of Hitler. Hitler was a fascist, as I see Putin is. He's, he's an autocratic dictator who, uh, who wields power and uh, focuses power into one person, which is himself. That's a way, way far right wing thing to do. So the, the title of this story and the idea behind it is completely flawed to begin with. But let's continue. Mason was speaking in a pre-taped interview scheduled to air on this reporter's Sunday night talk program. Blah, 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 blah. Broadcasts who gives a shit on AM. Far-right pieces of shit. The comic, a staunch supporter of Israel, sounded off about Ocasio-Cortez's unsubstantiated allegation during a recent interview about the occupation of Palestine before conceding that she is not an expert on geopolitics on the issue when challenged by the host to explain herself. So, she said, what we all know is true, that Israel is an apartheid state who treats Palestinians like they're not people. And she had to backtrack because she didn't have facts to back it up. And she says, you know what? I don't really know. Having an honest moment. And oh, God, oh, I'm Jackie Mason. I Political scholar Jackie Mason himself had to know, oh, how dare she say anything negative about Israel? Can you imagine that apartheid state Israel is something negative? These are the same people, by the way, Netanyahu has shifted blame, saying that, I don't know if you read this, that Hitler didn't want to exterminate the Jews, he just wanted to move them, and the Palestinian leader at the time led him to the genocide. So that's where Israel is at right now, that their president for forever is now making these obscene uh, conspiracy theories about the Holocaust come to light. So that's what we're dealing with when we talk about Israel, by the way. This is not against Zionism. It's not against the sovereignty uh, of Jews to have a nation of their own. It's against what Israel has mutated into. Anyway, and it goes to just give all this stuff about Ocasio-Cortez's background. And Mason exclaimed, she studied international relations, but not in a university. She must have studied that in her kitchen because she knows as much about international relations as I know about skiing. Apparently, she knows as much about international relations, according to you, as you know about geopolitics, because you're saying she's to the left of Putin. Trump is to the left of Putin. Everybody is to the left of Putin at this point. He's a dictator. He's a fascist on the far right end of the spectrum. Such a flawed argument. And this whole thing where, I'm going against her because of Israel. Here, I'm Jackie Mason, the the great arbiter for Israel. Oh, boy. What an idiot. Anyway, that's not all I came to tell you about. It's not all negative railing against the far right here. I don't want to turn this into a Chapo Trap House episode, okay? I want to have a positive discussion before I get out of here. 
And I wanted to talk about AI because I've been watching PewDiePie, PewDiePie, PewDiePie's walkthrough of the game Detroit Become Human, which is a kind of a heavy rain style game where the uh, the player plays as three different androids at kind of a climactic point in androids history in the near future when they're kind of beginning to have their own movement and ask for their own rights. And the, the decisions you make, like in Heavy Rain, affect the story, and you can kill your character early and miss out on huge swaths of the storyline. Looks like a very interesting game, but PewDiePie playing it has kind of brought up some interesting discussions about AI. Now, obviously, when I say artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence in some way or form exists now. However, learning AI, AI that can teach itself to the point of becoming more intelligent, uh, not vertically but horizontally than humans is still what what we look forward to so most fear the coming of ai you know it's been very negatively portrayed in popular culture by things such as terminator films and they say oh we're going to be killed by ai and ai is going to overthrow us which is absolutely a threat when we create a higher level of intelligence there's definitely a threat that these these beings will wish to break through and not be obedient to us anymore so how do we functionally deal with AI in a way that's not sensationalist on either way? Sensationalist is saying everything's going to be perfect and we're going to live in a paradise in the future or be dystopian like the Terminator films now. In my opinion, I've read a couple good books about artificial intelligence, but the three that stand out the most in my mind are iRobot, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, and Dune. Most recently I read Dune. Dune is an excellent book. And it's also very unique in the world of sci-fi because it essentially gets rid of all thinking machines. Now, in Dune, the war with robots in the, in the past, called the Butlerian Jihad, resulted in the cardinal rule of the OC Bible at the time, which is kind of like the, uh, the law of all uh, the known galaxy at that point. The law is, thou shalt not make a machine in the likeness of a human mind. Now, of course, this is a very interesting device to get rid of the problems of trying to develop computers into the near future and actually what it does is it focuses the novel on more kind of how humans in the future improve their way of thinking improve how they do without robots essentially which is a very interesting device but it's also a logical outcome of what would happen if there was a war with artificial intelligence so that's the first one the second one that i want to talk about is uh, irobot irobot has a famous example of artificial intelligence and again, like Terminator, it kind of depicts this war escalating between the robots and the humans, whereas ordinarily the robots were kind of made as a subservient AI to humans, but they rise up and have this revolution, as we have seen again and again throughout history of any oppressed group. But iRobot actually, what is interesting about it, I believe it's Isaac Asimov who wrote it. Isaac Asimov said that if all my words are forgotten in time, the last that will be forgotten are the three rules. The three rules of artificial intelligence that are depicted in iRobot, which kind of function as a original check to the robots and make sure that they save subservient. The three rules are a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human, be human being to come to harm. Second of all, a robot must obey orders given to it by humans beings except where such orders would conflict with the first law. So the cardinal rule is don't hurt people and protect people. Second is obey, as long as it doesn't override the first. And then the third rule is, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not inflict with conflict with the first or second law, which seems to make sense. They protect themselves to a certain point, and they protect humans first of all. Now, the, these kind of rules are something that we should absolutely educate ourselves about and think about quite seriously 
before jumping with both feet into the idea of artificial intelligence. You know, the, the it's been a question of, for decades we've been talking about the idea of creating a thinking machine. At this point, I don't think it's even if it's going to happen, it's more of when it is going to happen. So with artificial intelligence, the main questions that remain are, is it possible if a machine can reason and react to stimuli, at what point do they deserve civil rights and privileges, which is discussed in Frankenstein? And where does mankind stand if AI can continue to create and grow? These are good questions, but my point is in talking about artificial intelligence, that I believe artificial intelligence will be kind of the next great race for humanity. After World War II, the United States became the superpower in the world because they developed the atomic bomb. I would actually argue whoever develops AI next will be the foremost power in the world. Because if you have a comprehensive AI, you can apply that to economics, trade, military strategies. A, a nation that would hold artificial intelligence apart from all the others would improve so exponentially and so rapidly compared to the others that it would make all the other countries look you know, years, maybe even decades behind. So uh, the another question that I wanted to address is at what point do androids or robots deserve civil rights? Now this is, of course, explored very deeply in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, where the, crea the creator, Dr. Victor von Frankenstein, puts these dead organs together and gives it a bolt of lightning, that iconic scene, and Frankenstein's monster comes to life. Now this is an emotional creature that while callous and, you know... Uh, different because it's made up of dead organisms so it may not feel as deeply still has emotions still has feelings as depicted when the townspeople go after it with pitchforks and torches it terrifies the creature so it's almost like a sympathetic view of our first conception of ai i'd recommend you read frankenstein on the topic of artificial intelligence because it's very good the final uh work that i wanted to address though that talks about ai is do androids dream of electric sheep which is, of course, adapted into Blade Runner. So the real question that is even in the title of this is if there is consciousness in artificial intelligence, do they realize that they're artificial intelligence? Do they feel and, and think any less deeply than us? Uh, can you convince an artificial intelligence that it is actually a real intelligence by giving it a background such as we see in Blade Runner? These are very real questions that we have to ask in the near future, and I hope everybody will uh, educate themselves on this as they... Will about the voter registration. God, hey, read about this, read about this. You guys have homework this week on the podcast. But I wanted to talk about artificial intelligence before I get into the last part. Finally, the Brian at the cinema. Bum, bum, bum. So, pretty much all I wanted to say about Inception was that it came about in 2010 when I was out at a summer camp. And at that point, I was very into tennis and sports and stuff like that. 2010 was really the year that I realized that I loved watching movies, critically. At least, you know, kind of analyzing movies, you know, watching them for the cinematography, stuff like that. And the two movies that really got me into it were Inception and The Social Network, both of which came out that year. And in my opinion, were underappreciated at the Academy Awards. You know, The King's Speech won a lot that year. Uh, that's probably a fine movie. I've seen it a couple times. I like Jeffrey Rush in it. He did, he's the only thing that didn't win. They won Best Director, Best Actor for Colin Firth, and Best Picture, which is just robbing the social network if you ask me but that's neither here nor there 2010 i saw inception and immediately i loved it up until the last second with the the unknown ending the cliffhanger ending where the top is spinning and you're not sure if he's still in a dream or not even though you're pretty sure he's not 
it's still a nice cliffhanger ending. But it's it's a movie that is very much unlike anything else in the heist genre. Because most of what is in the heist genre has kind of simple characters whose characterization is only given directly and is only discussed in conjunction with what they do for the story. For example, if you have a tech guy, they say, oh man, he uh, he hacked the Pentagon or he, he did that when he was 12 years old. So they're not really telling you anything about what makes him tick, what his motivations are. They're just showing you what he's capable of so that they can... It's believable that he is able to hack something or have unrealistic abilities later in the movie. In Inception, though, while it doesn't give you a ton of background for any of the other characters, because Leonardo DiCaprio is struggling with things, his background slowly unfolds throughout the film. It's a nuanced enough film. Uh, it's well-written enough that every time I watch it, I get a little something out of it. Now, while the first time I saw it, I, I noticed this, it's not until this viewing that I actually realized how important a certain motif was. It starts at the end. So it starts where the elder version of Saito is trying to be convinced by Leonardo DiCaprio to come out of the dream. But at that point, the viewer doesn't know it, and that's supposed to be kind of how Leonardo DiCaprio is. And then it jolts us back to the point where we actually connect it. It's the same place when Leonardo DiCaprio is in Saito's dream the first time, trying to extract. The first time the line is said is when Saito is trying to convince Leonardo DiCaprio to actually do Inception. Where he says, do you want to go home and see your family, or do you want to become an old man filled with regret, waiting to die alone? That's the line that sells it to Leonardo DiCaprio. Now that line is the motif. That line is repeated right before Cillian Murphy is interrogated for the first time. So right before his inception has begun. But then at the very end of the film, when Leonardo DiCaprio is trying to remember Saito and trying to help Saito remember him, he says... Are you going to stay here to become an old man filled with regret, waiting to die alone? And it's the big punchline of the movie is that during Inception, Inception is done without the viewer even noticing. It's a great film. So if you haven't seen Inception, I would absolutely recommend it. And I've gone on for way too long. So until next time, I will catch you guys later. Peace.